Welcome back to My Life Plus 2025. 20, uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Mario Chavez, and if you've been following my episodes, if you've been following my podcast, my platform, then you're probably aware uh, that for the last 7 17 years, I've been wrongfully incarcerated and convicted for a crime that I did not commit. And recently, I've been writing and talking a great deal about criminality. It's a topic that tends to step into our lives regardless of who we are. And at the end of September, I wrote a piece called Violent Crime Surge, What Can Albuquerque Mayor Do? And then a few weeks later, I wrote a piece lamenting the political cynicism in a piece called Benny Hargrove Gun Safety Act, which surprisingly was the most viewed piece that I've written thus far on Substack. And previously to that, I wrote uh, several pieces about mass incarceration, about the fallacy of believing that that crime can be eradicated through harsher consequences or longer prison sentences. And I've arrived at a conclusion that, that honestly, I doubt that I'm the first person to arrive at, right? Because I think that some people have for a long time been arriving at this conclusion that the principal underwriter of crime is socioeconomic injustice. And recently a friend of mine, Alejandro, suggested that I defend it. He sent me a message and he says, look, you've been talking about this a lot. You need to defend this. And so on today's episode 25 of My Life Plus 25, I'm going to talk about socioeconomic injustice, the underwriter of crime, right? I'm going to be talking about cheat codes. I'm going to be talking about ideology and justice. And one of the many things that incarceration has taught me is that tragedy disaster, hardship, whatever term you prefer to use to describe the painful and difficult and and frightening parts of life is that these occurrences and moments reveal our flaws and weak points. Now, just like in our society, right, the pandemic of COVID-19 has revealed the very same things to us. I mean, COVID has shown us that the majority of America is constantly teetering on the brink of financial ruin. And all it took was unemployment and a few missed paychecks because of a contagious virus and suddenly people can't buy food or, or pay rent or you know go see a doctor or sustain their ways of life. So I want everyone to stop and think about that for just a moment. I mean, we worry about things like war or especially nuclear war, right, or terrorist attacks. And these are things that many people fear, and here's this virus that comes along and does far more damage. I mean, we couldn't defend ourselves with guns or missiles or the $725 billion that we spend as a nation on defense. It didn't defend us. It didn't defend us at all. It's 11% of federal spending, and it didn't defend us. The government had no choice but to step in. But it may not have been for the reasons that we think, and that's one of the things that I want to touch on today. People were unemployed, hungry, in many instances desperate, and too many people in that situation would, would create a collapse of the socioeconomic order. So obviously checks had to be cut, money had to be printed, and handed out to the masses, because otherwise the social order collapses. And basically it was nothing more than a bribe being paid, right? A bribe being paid to avoid having to address the fundamental flaws 
of our winner-takes-all society, right? So the stimulus checks were a bribe, and for many people, even a godsend, right? Absolutely. But still, it was a bribe. We were bribed to not take by force the things that, for many people in the world, are given as a fundamental right, right? Things like health care, medicine, housing, food, right? Education, heat, electricity, the, the basics. And in some instances, depending on where you are in the world, even a basic income. Now, in this country, these are products to be sold for a profit. I mean, this idea, right, of selling everything for a profit began as a theory with, you know, known economists like Adam Smith or or in his multi-part opus, Wealth of Nations or Maine. And there have been lots of brilliant analytical minds that have contributed to this whole free market capitalism theory. And the problem with theories, right, and this is one of the things that I, that I, that I really think needs to be touched on, is the problem with theories is that they often collide with evidence. And that obviously doesn't, evidence that doesn't substantiate the theory and ideally because we like to think of ourselves as rational beings we would like to think that oh well we're looking at the evidence and then we're going to make changes to our theories based on the evidence right but the problem is that our theories on the best way to organize ourselves socially and economically is producing undesired results right, right? things like homelessness or inequality or crime right crime and this isn't new i mean we've we've seen this for centuries but we haven't changed our theories because despite how rational we might like to think of ourselves as, the truth is, even when the facts change, we will always change our opinions until we're backed into the corner and forced to do so. And even then, I mean, we're like, well, let's just change as little as possible. And this doesn't seem rational, and we must certainly like to think of ourselves as rational. And part of the problem may be that our theories, right, they tend to become ideologies. And an ideology no longer needs to be defended with facts. Now, let me say this again, because it's an, it's an extremely important point. An ideology no longer needs to be defended with facts. That's key. Because once we start to ignore the facts, we can justify just about anything. We can say things like, homeless people, they're just lazy. Poor people socioeconomic inequality, or as I prefer to call it, socioeconomic injustice. They're just lazy too. Crime? Well, they're just bad people who choose to do bad things, right? Like crime, or because they're lazy. Now, this sort of rationalization where we no longer have to substantiate things with facts means that we're able to address these unfortunate remainders in our socioeconomic equation with just more theories. You know, they're lazy, they're lazy, they just choose to do bad things, and they're lazy. Instead of the facts, you know, something that is extremely dangerous. And that's exactly what we're doing. We look at these social, at these social guarantees that we see people, right, in other nations enjoying. Things like healthcare and education and and living wages and medicine and people will get angry and they'll they'll yell and tell things and say things like socialists or communists and, and nobody wants to be either of those things. Right? Now, it's important to note that nobody is giving away free anything. It's just that some nations have implemented a more efficient and cost effective way of covering certain life necessities. 
Now, if you're brave enough, right, ask this question whenever these types of arguments come up. Ask this question. Where is this socialism that you hate and fear? I constantly confront conservatives with this question all the time because I enjoy crushing ideology with facts, right? So first I say, where is this socialism that you fear? They say things like, well, Venezuela or Cuba or China or North Korea. And with the exception of North Korea, because honestly, I don't know what the hell is going on there. But the other places, right, the, the Cuba, the China, the Costa Rica, the Venezuela, none of these are true socialism or communism. For that to be true, right, for that to be true, the state would have to own and control the means of production, distribution, and exchange, which none of the governments of these countries do. Even China, which controls the value of its own currency, does not fully control the means of production, distribution, and exchange. So what does this tell us? Right? Obviously, somewhere along our educational life trajectories, we've been taught that receiving any kind of basic social benefit is bad, right? Healthcare, food, housing, medicine, education, the basic things that I've already mentioned, these are apparently products to be sold for a profit, not basic guarantees to ensure a healthy, prosperous, equal opportunity nation for all. And this ideology of believing this, right, despite the evidence to the contrary, has brought us a lot of unnecessary dysfunction, right? Think of things like mass incarceration, criminal homelessness and the poverty, and obviously all these things are part of this. Now, the argument that I'm constantly, that I've constantly made is that socioeconomic injustice that we've created with our theories that have now become ideologies is linked to the criminality that plagues our society. And what you might be asking yourself is, how does one get to this, right? How, how do I arrive at this conclusion? And the simple thing is facts and evidence. I've talked about this numerous times in that for the last 17 years, I've been sitting in the cages of the very institutions that societies have created to address the remainder of a faulty equation. I've conducted hundreds of interviews where I've asked questions that most elected officials are either too frightened or too incompetent to ask themselves. Questions like, what led you to the criminality? It's an obvious question, but it's not being asked. Why did you commit the crime you were you were charged with? Right? Or what keeps you coming back again and again to prison? And when you start taking the time to process and understand the answers to these questions, you start to see the similarities in the answers. And with the similarities, you see that crime, right? The origins of crime are not to be found in the simplicity of the ideology that says people are criminals because they're just bad people, right? Or because they choose to be criminals. I mean, yes, there are there are choices being made, and someone when someone steals a car, right, or or robs someone or assaults someone, obviously an individual is choosing to do something that they inherently know to be prohibited and illegal. But it's important for us to understand the motives. And yes, I'm I'm aware of the obvious answers that they want the value, right, to be derived from whatever it is that's being stolen or taken through illicit means. But let's take this a step further, right, just for the sake of, of argument. It's a fair assumption to say that 
In the majority of instances, people committing property-related crimes are doing so because they are attempting to acquire something they don't already have. And the general societal response to this is, again, because they're lazy and they don't want to work for it. Because they see, you know, these great things and these great lives that other people have, and they want a piece of that. You know, better lives seem to appear in every single movie or magazine or television show or online or on the stage that we can find. I mean, hell, I've actually been there myself. I know what it's like to come up from trying circumstances and desperately want a different and conceivably better life. And if you're interested to know more about my personal challenges, I mean, read one of my one of my first posts on Substack at audiochavez.substack.com, like sand castles or clown sharks, right? And you'll have a better understanding of the challenges that I faced and overcome. And because I know what this is about, I feel confidently saying that laziness, right, laziness isn't the whole story because hard work is only part of the equation. Material success also requires things like knowledge, opportunity, contacts. It requires being at the right place at the right time with the means and the know-how to seize an opportunity when it presents itself. Do you think people who attend places like Harvard or Yale or any Ivy League institution do so to learn something different from something being taught at in Texas or Montana or Colorado at a state university? No. They're essentially learning the same theories and concepts. People don't strive for the landmark institutions because they think they're going to learn something different. They do so because of the status that those institutions confer on them, right? An MBA from Harvard brings with it not only the education, but the contacts they come with it. It's like being an insider to equity or commodity trading. You know, with insider information, you can ideally beat the market because essentially the market can't be, can't be beat unless you possess insider information. And unfortunately, hard work will not solve all of our problems. Alone, it will not guarantee us the means or ability to join the inner crowd of Ivy League institutions. And even if it could, there is only a limited amount of space in these institutions. And I'm not for a second trying to discount the hard work involved in the overall success of someone like, like Bezos or Barack Obama or Lady Gaga or Steve Jobs. I mean, these have all been talented, driven individuals who all worked hard to get, you know, to get to where they arrived in their lives or have arrived in their lives. But for every one Mark Zuckerberg, there are probably a billion people who have worked harder for longer and have not yielded the same results. And I'm not trying to discount someone like Zuckerberg or by saying that he's just lucky. I'm simply pointing out that he had an idea, right, a motive, and a means by which to bring that idea to fruition. He took a risk, and he most certainly has reaped the rewards. And we hear about him and know about him because he succeeded. But there are probably another billion other Zuckerbergs in this world who have never, we've never even heard about, and we never will. And the point I'm trying to make is that the world has a lot of untapped potential, ideas, solutions to problems, things that has, that we see, right? Because they were planted in the right place. But there's a lot of other great things out there that we'll never see because they were never planted in the right soil for, by which to grow and, and prosper. And when you happen to be standing, right, 
on the wrong side of the railroad tracks, and inside of your own household, you're confronted with existential problems like fears involving hungry children, right, overdue utility bills, medicine that's needed and you don't have the money to buy, or any other of these existential threats such as, such as what I just mentioned. You don't see these hard work as a viable solution in itself. Yes, I mean, we can say that their choices place them in these predicaments, but lamenting what could have been doesn't change what is. Because what is is a dire situation that requires our immediate attention, attention that isn't received because our political leaders are arguing about whether or not something seems too much like socialism instead of just addressing the obviousness of the situation, right? The situation being that there are lots, I mean, millions of children in this country and around the world, all throughout Latin America, who, if we don't do what needs to be done for them now, so as to rescue them from the desperate decisions that they will make, they will likewise not be interested in adhering to our laws later down the road. Now, whether we realize it or not, Getting people to respect and adhere to laws, right, into an established form of social order is a transaction of services being exchanged, right? And it involves a respect, mutual respect. And what we're doing now is to demand, and essentially what equates to gunpoint, for people who are oppressed by circumstances to follow rules that benefit our societies, but from their point of view, doesn't benefit them. We're saying, follow these rules or else. And in response, they're saying, but I need housing. I need a way to provide for my kids with education and opportunities. And our collective response is, no. And, and they're saying, well, well, why not? Oh, well, because you know, that smells of communism and socialism when it's not. It's called common sense. I guess what we could just call it is common sense-ism. When we help those around us, that's called community. And when we feel that we're part of a community, we're more likely to behave in a way that benefits the community. We don't need PhDs to know any of this. It's just common sense. And I know that there are psychopaths in this world, people who bring about violence and maybe even extract pleasure from doing so. There are people who are being steal for greed more than necessity. But a greedy person maybe decides to acquire something illicitly as a shortcut to the more arduous methods of legitimate enterprise because he or she doesn't respect the laws of the nation. There are any number of reasons why this may be. For instance, look, how about impunity? The fact that we're not all held to the same standards. Or how about the fact that the system is set up to secure the rich and subjugate the poor? Now, if you were playing, let's pick a multiplayer video video game, right? And people that you're playing against, all different parts of the world, have cheat codes, right? A way to acquire weapons or credits or whatever is beneficial to them in the game. And you recognize that they're cheating to win. And then an opportunity to acquire some illicit advantage over the very people who are already cheating presents itself to you. Obviously, your objective is to win. It stands to reason that you'll feel justified in breaking the rules, just like, like they did. Well, socioeconomic injustice is just that. It's a game. Everyone else 
has cheat codes or some other illicit advantage, and yet the game demands of you compliance to the very rules that everyone else is ignoring. Now, some are still going to have to follow these rules out of fear of consequences, but others, right, others, out of a sense of justice, are going to follow the lead of other rule breakers and try to win the game by any means necessary. And again and again, this is what leads to so much crime. Life is a game in which people try to win by any means necessary, and the rules only seem to matter if you get caught breaking them. And the only way to change this is to change the objective of the game. The game right now is to win by any means necessary. But what if the objective was social harmony? What if the, the objective was justice? What if the objective was fairness and equality? Things that benefit the whole, right? The collective. Society, right? Societies, in plural, that offer things like this, free education, healthcare, or other basic services, are not giving away something for free. What they're doing is buying something for everyone, and everyone is paying for it collectively, and everyone is benefiting. If we want to drastically reduce crime, we need to drastically reduce the reasons for why the majority of crime is pursued. Close the loopholes that entrap some while benefiting others. Bring fairness and common sense, right, or common sense-ism into our justice concept of justice. Our judicial concept of justice is what I mean to say. And finally, stop turning theories into ideologies because when we get to the point where we're ignoring the facts so as to have, you know, not have to second guess or alter our ideologies, we've already lost. We need to stop ignoring the facts and follow wherever the evidence takes us and act accordingly. Thank you for following me and thank you for listening. I hope this is has proved to be a defense of defending why socioeconomic injustice creates crime. There are some very exciting things happening in my in my case right now. I encourage you to visit my website at mylife25.com and look at the recent petition filed by my lawyer, Jason Bowles, and you'll understand why these exciting things are happening. As always, follow me at on Twitter at LifePlus2025, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you.